Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. In 2011, David Nettleberg and Neil Catcher created a documentary TV series. This documentary TV series was called Mortified. And on this show, they invited celebrities and writers of different sorts to come onto the show and bring with them any sort of thing that they could find that they had written while they were teenagers. Of course, the only remnants of anything that most of us wrote while we were teenagers are diaries. That's what the show mostly was. Celebrities showing up and reading their teenage diaries out loud to an audience of everyone. That's why the show was called Mortified. It went on to be an award-winning podcast and a stage show that traveled throughout the country as people dredged their past up into the present. As these celebrities, the the first one was, was Andy Bernard from The Office, as he got up, found his diary from his teenage years, opened it up, and began to read passages from it. I think all of us understand and are a little bit alarmed. Most of us hope that those diaries that we wrote when we were teenagers, if we did write them, burned in a house fire. If our childhood house has to go and that's the cost of things, so be it. Just so long as that poetry that we wrote when we thought we were very clever and 14 is gone along with the house. We, we know the feeling that if somebody were to find those things, if somebody were to, were to find those diaries from when we were younger, we know the sort of feeling of being ashamed. Because why? Because we're all acquainted with that feeling. We're all acquainted with the feeling of shame. And for some of us, yes, it's just the, the sort of silliness of the way that our, our feelings and our emotions ran amok as teenagers. That happened to all of us. But some of us are acquainted with a little bit more of a struggle. Not just the, the generalized shame, but something more specific. Something deeper. Not just the things that we've done. That's more related to guilt. But more the feeling that only a bad person does the sort of things that I do. That, that only a bad person could have the things happen to me that I have. That it's not just that I've done bad things, but that I am categorically a bad person. That's where our shame originates. Our shame is born out of that feeling. Not just the things that we've done, but that I must be a bad person to do these things. And so for some of us, we carry this feeling around with us. Like an invisible backpack weighing down on our shoulders. This feeling of shame. 
And I think it's a more common experience than, than most of us want to admit. I think many of us experience this and think that we're the only ones. But we're not. And the question becomes, what do we do with this? If we, are, if we are, many of us, carrying this backpack of shame around with us, if many of us are walking around shoulders tight and clenched because we're constantly worried that everyone else is going to find out how we really are, if that's what we do, what do we do with our shame? Our culture has an answer. Our culture says that it's not your fault. That it's just other people projecting onto you, and it's just the, the things that you were programmed to make, the, the, the systems that, that made you the way that you are. Whatever it is, it's not your fault. Because if we can, if we can rid ourselves of responsibility, we can rid ourselves of shame. And so our culture creates mechanisms for us to go, oh, not my fault, not my problem, I can get rid of shame that way. The hard part is many of us have tried that. And it's been found wanting. Many of us have tried to just deflect from responsibility, and it's not working. And so we're stuck with our shame. We're stuck with it. And the problem with shame is that, that whether it's big or small, whether it's something significant or general. The problem with our shame is, is that it separates us, it isolates us from one another, and it's an impediment, it's a hurdle from us knowing God and growing in God. So if that's the case, we would expect the Bible to address this topic of shame, wouldn't we? And it just so happens that it does. And it does so in one of the most beautiful stories in the life of Jesus. This is a story that, that if you've been in the church for a while, you're probably familiar with at least the sketch of it. It's the story of the woman at the well. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to read you the first 27 verses of John chapter 4. I'd ask that you'd stand in just a moment as I do it. And let's hear this and let's listen with new ears, with fresh ears to this story that many of us have heard before. So please stand with me as I read John chapter 4. <clears throat> now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself and all his sons, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. Will be thirsty again, I'm sorry. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may not, I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him. I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is a spirit and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. If you're new to reading the Bible, there are a number of things about this text uh, that seem from the get-go confusing. And I think one of the things that is most confusing, most intriguing, wait a minute, what's going on here, is, is this seeming low-key racism that is sort of woven throughout this passage or implied throughout this passage. And if you see that, if you see the way that they're interacting and saying something's not right here, you are correct. Uh, the people of Israel, uh, the Jewish people and the Samaritan people hated one another. The Samaritans originated when the Jews were sent off into exile. Those people who remained in the land of Israel, uh, the King Nebuchadnezzar sent in five different nations to live in this area. And so because they didn't have enough of a community uh, to marry each other, they began to intermarry with these other people. And the Samaritans were the product of that exile. They were the product of the Jews who were left over from the exile and the foreigners who had come in. And they created a culture for themselves. They created a way of living while the rest of their country was in exile. They, they said that they were the, the children of Joseph and they lived in the area right dead in the center of Israel. If you were to look up at a map, either today or an ancient map of the land of Israel, and you were to take like the middle 30%, that would be Samaria. That's where it is. It's right through the middle. And they said that they were the children of Joseph. 
They said they were the children of Joseph, Jacob's favorite son. And so they lived in this land that Jacob had given to Joseph. And they decided that, that all, of the, all of the Old Testament, besides the first five books, let's throw that out. Let's get rid of that. Let's just take the first five books of the Bible. And you know what? You know who's always ruining everything? Those people who live in Jerusalem. When the people who lived in Jerusalem tried to build a new temple, they said, no, we're leaving. We're doing our own. And so they built their own temple. Well, this started a little bit of a rivalry and a little bit of a war. About 150 years after this, the people of Israel decided that they didn't like that the Samaritans had their own temple. They didn't like that they were worshiping their God. And so they came in and they destroyed the temple. Well, the Samaritans were not happy. So the Samaritans decided that they would take a bunch of bones and they would desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. So a week before Passover, before it could be cleansed, they went in and made it to where all of Israel couldn't worship in the temple for Passover. These are not friendly relationships. These are religious and racially motivated hate crimes, one against another. This is the backdrop for the story. Because when a Jew who lived in northern Israel had to return to northern Israel, had to go to southern Israel for Passover or any of the other feasts, they had to make a choice. Do we take the long way and not even go through Samaria? Or do we take the short way and have to go through Samaria? And Jesus decides that he's going to take the short way. He's going to take the way that leads right up through the middle of Samaritan country. And that's where he encounters this woman. And you see from the very beginning of their conversation that there is this past. There is this history that is animating their discussion. Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, is sitting by the well. And the woman comes at about noon to get some water. And Jesus says, can I get a glass of water? And her response is not, oh, seems like a reasonable request on a hot Middle Eastern day for somebody to ask for a glass of water, especially somebody who clearly does not have the means to retrieve the water from them, for themselves from the well. Does she say, ah, yeah, of course, let me, let me help you out here. No, no, she says, what are you, a Jew, doing asking for water from me, a Samaritan woman? That's not how this works, pal. There is all of this subtext, all of this history going on. And she is asking, what is going on here? Because something is weird is happening. And that's true. But, but Jesus being the one taking the short route through the Samaria is not the most out of place person we've met so far in this text. Because what do we know already about this woman as we follow this story? She is coming to draw water at noon. Now, I am not a scientist. 
I am not a meteorologist. But I think that noon is roughly the hottest part of the day. And she's also coming alone. She's coming at an odd hour of the day. And she's coming alone to draw water. All the signs point to the fact that this woman was some kind of outcast. This woman was not exactly in the good graces of everyone else around her in the city. Why? Because when you would expect to to go out and get water would be at a reasonably cool time of the day. Probably sometime early in the morning or later in the evening. And you would expect that you would go and do it with everyone else. That this would be sort of a, a group activity. This would be mandatory fun that everybody in the village would go out together. But this woman is not included in those rituals. And so they begin to talk. Jesus asks her for water. She says, why are you asking me for water? Jesus says, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for water. And all of a sudden we find ourselves in almost the exact same spot we found ourselves in two weeks ago. Where Jesus is talking to somebody. Two weeks ago was Nicodemus. This week it's the woman at the well. And, And they are completely missing what's going on. Jesus says something and they totally miss the idea of what's going on. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus says. Can I get back in a womb? How does this work? Jesus says, you should be asking me for water because I can give you living water. And the woman says, how? You don't have a bucket or a rope. And then, and then something happens. Something kind of strange happens. Jesus says, if, if I give you this water, you'll never thirst again. And then I bungled the reading of that. He says, if I give you this water, you're never going to thirst again. And all of a sudden, she gets excited. She gets excited. Why? She says, give it to me. That way, I'm not thirsty. And that way, I don't have to come back to this well. It's a strange detail, don't you think? Why is this woman excited? Jesus says, I'll give you this living water. You'll never thirst again. She says, that's great. Then I'm not thirsty, and and more than that, then I don't have to come back to this well. What we're beginning to see is how this is a story of shame. Because what this woman wants, when she says, give me water so I'm not thirsty again, so I don't have to come back to the well, is I don't want to have to be reminded Of what's wrong with me. I don't want to have to look square in the face of my problem. Of the fact that I'm outcast by the community. Of the fact that I am not a part of what's going on. That I have to come to the well by myself at noon. So if you give me whatever this water is that you're talking about, I don't have to come to the well. And how often is that you and I? I don't, I don't want to repent. I don't want to take responsibility for my actions. What I want is God to wave a magic wand and make all the consequences of my sin go away. I want God to just do some things 
and then I won't have to feel the shame. Now, now I don't, I don't want to change. I don't want to repent. I don't want to do the hard work of looking at my heart. No, 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 no. Just fix it. Just make it so I don't have to think about this anymore. Make it so I don't have to see it. Make it so I don't have to go back to the well. This is just like when our children are sick. And I realize the irony that we have so many families out because their children are sick. And the people that are feeling this most acutely right now are the people that are not here. I get that. But what do our children want? Our children want us to treat their symptoms. They could care less about us treating the underlying problem. My son wants to get well. My son doesn't want, or my, I'm sorry, my son doesn't want to get well. He doesn't care about that. He just wants to feel better. Church, we don't want to get well. Most of us, by our actions, we don't want to get well. We just want to feel better. We don't want to deal with what's going on in our lives. This woman doesn't want to deal with the underlying cause of why she's at the well at noon. She just wants to not have to go to the well at noon. So many times we come to Jesus and what we want is him to just fix our shame and us not to have to change. I do this. I do this too. How many times do I just want God to let me stop thinking about something instead of doing the hard work of repenting? How many times do I just sort of brush an argument with my wife under the rug in hopes that she won't bring it up later so we can just forget about it and I don't have to do the hard work of repenting and saying I was wrong? How many times do you continue on in a relationship and hide and cover so that you don't have to do the hard work of repenting? I just, I just don't want to be reminded of my shame. So whatever it takes to not be reminded of my shame, that's what I want. I'm just going to hide from it. But hiding from our shame, pretending it doesn't exist, shoving it down, first of all, doesn't work. But second of all, is not the true Christian answer to the problem of our shame. Because what does Jesus do? This woman says, give me this water so I don't have to come back to this well. And Jesus says, "Mm, go get your husband. And Jesus puts his finger directly on the wound and pokes it. Because what does the woman say? I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, good answer, because you've had five, and now you're living with a guy also not your husband. So, so from the department of truth, that is true you do not have a husband. That is not entirely accurate, though. And so this woman wants to be rid of the feeling of her shame, wants to not have to think about it. And then Jesus puts his finger right on it. And what does she say? I think one of the one of the funniest lines in the entire Bible is we we should hear the humor in this line. The, the, Jesus says to this woman who he's never met, 
You've had five husbands and now you're living with a guy that's not your husband. What does this woman say to Jesus? Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. (laughs) I I think you know some things, guy. (laughs) I think that you're a prophet. And then what does she immediately say after that? Now, now, we worship Yahweh on that mountain. You people say that Yahweh should only be worshipped on your mountain. What's she doing here? What's happening here? Jesus puts his finger on her shame. And she immediately, like Teflon, deflects. And starts, she tries to pick a religious argument with Jesus. Who's right about which temple is proper? Are the Jews right or the Samaritans right? Settle it, Mr. Prophet. What is she doing? She's deflecting. The way that shame works is shame always needs an audience. Whether it's a real audience or a perceived audience. Whether it's an audience of actual people or an audience of people that you are making up in your head. What we're ashamed is that those people will find out what we're really like. And so our main coping mechanism to deal with shame, both Christian and non-Christian alike, the main way that we deal with shame is to go, look over there. As soon as someone gets close to our shame, we very quickly point away and say, don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain. Look over there. And church, the way we do this, Christians, the way we do this more often than not is by trying to distract people with how much we know about God. We try to distract people with how well we can talk biblically. Or we point out the deficiencies in their knowledge about God. And all we're doing in all of these scenarios, all that we're doing is trying to distract people from what's actually going on in our heart. We don't want people to realize what we're really like. So we are very quick to put up a religious facade, but all it is is a religious distraction. God says, there's some things that you need to repent of. And we say, wait a minute, which mountain is the proper mountain? Is it okay to sing such and such songs in church? What if somebody's not a Presbyterian, right? And we all of a sudden want to scratch our chins and wax eloquent and poetic when all we're doing is trying to deflect from our shame. City City Church, we as Presbyterians are the worst at this. Because by and large, we are a faith that takes thinking seriously, but we take it so seriously that we often use it to deflect from our shame. Instead of doing the hard work of repentance. And so this woman, Jesus says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five and then you've got that guy. 
Sir, you're a prophet. Now, settle this theological dispute for me. And what does Jesus keep pointing her back to? It's very interesting. Again and again and again, what Jesus keeps coming back to as he answers her questions is the idea of worship. Now, yes, this is, this is animated. This is connected to the fact that she asked, what mountain should we worship on? But Jesus says, no, 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 look. God is seeking worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. So the day's coming where it doesn't matter if it's Mount Gerizim or if it's Mount Zion, doesn't matter where it is, if it's a movie theater or a cathedral, there's a day coming where my people will worship me in spirit and in truth. And he keeps pointing back to worship. Why? And this is crucial. When this woman tries to deflect from her shame, why does Jesus keep pointing to worship. Because ultimately, the opposite of shame is worship. Shame keeps us paralyzed, looking inward and looking across at other people. What are they going to think of me? What have I done? Oh no. Worship forces our eyes upward. And leads us into freedom. Because all of a sudden, it's not about other people around me. It's about the object of my worship, God. And all of a sudden, it's not about what will they think. It's all about the realignment of our hearts. Shame looks around in worry. Worship looks up in settled hope. That there is someone greater than me. That my acceptance before God is not based on my performance, not based on how good or bad I am. It's not based on how broken and messed up I am. My acceptance before God is based on the fact that Jesus has taken my guilt. He has taken my shame. He has taken it on himself. And now through being united with him through faith, I have the opportunity to worship him. The Christian solution to shame is not to ignore it, is not to deflect from it, but is to look it square in the eyes and say, Jesus has taken that from me. Jesus has loved me through that. Jesus is greater than that. And because of that, I turn to him in worship. The hard part about Christianity is it requires us to look at the things that we don't want to look with. It requires us to look our shame square in the eye. And for those things, those times when our shame is caused by the things that we have done, it calls us to repent of those things. Just like this woman, who Jesus says, I know you don't have a husband. You've had five. Now you got another guy. I offer forgiveness. And we take responsibility for our actions. We can confess them. We can see that we're unworthy. We can cry out to Jesus. And Jesus makes us new. Jesus takes away not just our guilt, 
We think about that often, that Jesus took our guilt on the cross. But Jesus also took our shame as he hung naked and exposed. So that you don't have to bear it any longer. Jesus bore your guilt and your shame. Which is why he is worthy of our worship. Which is why he is true, good, and beautiful. As we taste the living water of freedom from shame that he offers us, we become a worshiping community. And so this morning, our call is not to look inward anymore, but to look upward. Our call is is not just to look inward at what other people will think, but rather to look upward to what Jesus is doing and to worship him. To look outward, not at what other people will think of us, but rather who can we love in the way that Jesus has loved this woman who is filled with shame. How can we reflect him in those ways? How can we be a community that is no longer frozen and chained to our shame? Not because we ignore it, because rather we find it taken from us in Jesus. Can, can, can a worshiping community freed from shame change downtown St. Petersburg? Can, can a worshiping community freed from shame change this city? City Church, let's, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who took our shame. Let's fix our eyes on him, and let's see. Let's pray.